even after I became Catholic, whenever I would hear someone refer to Mary as the mother of God, there was something in me that would just sort of rattle, like my bones would sort of shake inside my, my body because it just sounded so strange to me and it sounded wrong. It, it, it sounded like you were saying that, uh, as I said earlier, that Mary was somehow gave birth to the Holy Trinity or the Mary's above. You got Mary up here and then you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit below Mary. You know, she's the mother of God. Well, hello, and welcome to another globe-trotting episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. And if you've traveled with us this far, you know that this is episode number 100 of oh. this particular project. So congratulations. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations to you guys. Seriously. Uh, okay, let's stop, the us- let's stop the episode. Let's cut the tape and have a party. Okay, okay. now we're back. <laughs> I bought a cake. You want me to pass it through the screen? Yeah. Do you have Do you have smell of vision? Do you have taste of vision? I don't know. I don't know. All I, I know is that I who knew when we got this thing cranking, uh, ninety nine episodes uh, episodes ago, we would have made it all the way to episode one hundred. But I'm glad we're here, and we're glad that you're here uh, for on the journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny, the special limited cool series where we're talking about the Blessed Virgin Mary and how we used to think about her. As Protestants, when Ken Hensley, my colleague, was a former Baptist pastor, when Kenny Burchard was a Pentecostal pastor, when I was a Wesleyan, just a guy, uh, how we all used to think about Mary. And we're going to get into more of the dogmatic stuff today, but we can't really talk about that until we lay some foundational uh, pieces. So, Ken Hensley, Foundations, found- lay the foundation By the us. way, I... By the way, this may be a somewhat limited series, but I hope having Kenny Burchard on board is not a limited thing. Well, he's I'm still, really enjoying this. He's so still far. in audition mode. We're still <laughs> still part of the uh, oh, he's audition casting process. So, uh, Kenny, can you uh, log out for a second forward, while we Kenny. talk about something? <laughs> Actually, you're fine. by the way, if you um, want to support this and keep this free for all the viewers who come along, Kenny Burchard is in charge of development, and you can go figure out how to. <laughs> Be a monthly supporter of the Coming Home Network at chnetwork.org slash compass. You were no, saying. I'm happy that Kenny's on board. For one thing, I don't have to think like a madman when, I was do- when I'm doing it alone and sort of driving the content. I get to sit back at times and listen to what Kenny's saying and, and actually reflect on what I want to say next instead of having these, you know, electrochemical processes in my brain to start firing it out, you know? So anyway, I enjoy it. Kenny, it's good to have you. It's really What we're doing today, to okay. Wait, you're not supposed to talk. You're still on audition? Uh, no, 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 you're, you're still, still on audition? probation. Still on probation. <laughs> <laughs> Line. Um, okay. We're doing a series on, uh, we're doing a series in which we are telling the story of, of how we as Protestants came to accept and to embrace the Catholic Church's teaching on Mary. And in this episode, episode two of our series, we're, we're going to actually begin to work through the first um, Marian dogma. But not until much later, as you said, we got to lay some foundational issues. But we're going to talk about the first Marian dogma that was defined, Mary's divine motherhood, or Catholics 
how we refer to Mary as the mother of God. Okay? So that's what we're going to do today. All right. Go ahead and launch off, Matt. Sounds good. All right. So uh, in order for us to do this, I mean, part of the thing that sets this series apart, this whole program apart from a lot of other kinds of apologetics is that uh, we use it uh, to frequently admit that we had, uh, we, we were wrong about some stuff. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, I guess this is the opportunity here, and I'll explain a little bit of my end, but I want to hear from both of you uh, why it was so hard for you in the positions you came from to accept what the Catholic Church has to say about Mary. I'll start with you, Ken. You were Baptist pastor. Why, as a Baptist pastor um, leading a congregation, was it so hard for you to accept this stuff? Well, I— I'm actually going to broaden the issue a little bit because I spoke last week a little bit about why it was hard for me. And so I'm I'm thinking more in terms of why is it hard for Protestants in general? Because we work here at the Coming Home Network with many, many um, faithful Protestant Christians who come to us interested in the Catholic Church. And we find that accepting the Marian teachings is one of the most difficult for them. So I'm addressing it in a little bit more broadly than simply why I have a hard time. The question I'm asking and answering is, why do Protestants in general have such a hard time? And when I thought about this, uh, Matt, the first thing that came to mind was that famous quote from Archbishop Fulton Sheen, you know, about blah, blah, you know, 100 people this. uh, There are a million people or millions of people, something like this, I'm paraphrasing, millions of people who hate what they imagine the Catholic Church to be or to teach. On one level, speaking broadly, I see it as a visceral reaction that many, many Protestants have to what they imagine the Catholic Church to teach about Mary. Um, this is the first level. They, they, they see Catholics bowing down before a statue of Mary, where they see Catholics bringing roses and flowers and putting them at the, at the feet of a, of a statue of Mary. And they think Catholics worship Mary, um, even though it's, it's dogmatic Catholic teaching that no one is to be worshipped but God, only God can be worshipped, they imagine that Catholics worship Mary, um, or they hear Catholics speaking of Mary as the Queen of Heaven. That, that's one of the worst, okay? The Queen of Heaven. They immediately think, because of course Protestants know their Bibles really well, they immediately think of Jeremiah 7 verses 17 through 18, where we read, uh, the Lord said to Jeremiah, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. They hear this stuff. They see this stuff. I mean, many, many of our evangelical brothers, and they just view this as just proof that Catholicism, Catholicism is nothing more than another form of paganism, and that we're involved in pagan worship with regard to our views on Mary. Um, so that's kind of on a visceral level, and this comes from many misunderstandings of what Catholicism really teaches about Mary. But let, let me just state briefly, on a more serious level, that is on a more thoughtful level, Protestants have a hard time with the Marian dogmas of the Catholic Church, because they sincerely believe these doctrines to be, at best, unbiblical accretions, additions to the uh, revelation of God contained in inspired Word of God, Scripture, and at worst, blasphemous. You know, the thing, just think about it, you know, try to remember how you felt. Mary as the mother of God, it just sounds blasphemous. 
it sounds like we're saying, it sounds like Catholics are saying that Mary brought forth the Trinity, or that Mary is above the Trinity. The perpetual virginity of Mary, again, as I mentioned last week, don't the Gospels say that Jesus had brothers and sisters? Don't the Gospels actually name them? This is something we're going to come back to starting next week. But the Immaculate Conception of Mary, the idea that Mary was sinless throughout the course of her life, doesn't Paul say there is none righteous, no, not one, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? In other words, this is just patently unbiblical, this stuff. It's blasphemous. Mary's assumption into heaven, where does the Bible talk about that? Find me a verse. Prayers to Mary? Find me a verse on that one. Okay, so in other words, let me wrap this up and conclude. I think that on a visceral level, there are many, many misconceptions and there are strong feelings that many of our Protestant brethren have that are based on what they imagine the church to be teaching. But even when it comes to what the church actually does teach, Protestants simply view these teachings as being unsupported in Scripture or not supported enough or flatly contradictory to what the teaching of Scripture is. That's why Protestants have a very hard time with these teachings. And I would Anything add to that, add? Ken. I, I think that's just straight, straight up the middle, you know, uh, true, all, all of that. And what I would add to that is just a couple of, a couple of thoughts. One is, especially as you read some of the, um, anti-Marian ideas that emerge in later, uh, Protestant Reformation writings, there's this mm -hmm. constant refrain that the papists or the Catholics are supplanting Jesus. They're supplanting the place and the role and the esteem and the worship that belongs only to Jesus, and they're giving it away to Mary. And that's, uh, that's basically put into the category of idolatry. And so this is where Catholics are accused of being idolaters. And so when I was a pastor, you know, in our church, we would regular, regularly say for a phrase, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it's true. It's all about Jesus. Um, that's what Christianity is all about Jesus. And when I wasn't a Catholic and I would look at some of the things that were done by Catholics regarding Mary, I thought, well, it's all about Mary with them. Um, and because it was my view that they had supplanted Jesus with Mary. And there might be people watching this right now that would say, yeah, it seems just like that to me. Absolutely. I remember going to a wedding of one of the young ladies who attended our church uh, with her mom, and it was a Catholic wedding. And my wife and I were invited. And I think it was maybe the second Catholic wedding I'd ever been to in my life. And during the wedding mass, the bride walked over and put flowers at the feet of their statue of Mary. And I remember thinking, Man, they worship Mary in this church by putting flowers over on a statue. So that, that would be one of the biggest ones, the supplanting of the place of Jesus. I think back to what you said, probably the biggest thing is that it seems to lack biblical foundation. Just about anything Catholics say about Mary from a Protestant perspective seems to lack biblical foundation. But maybe a third and, and final thing for me is that what I discovered is that I was confused about what Catholics meant by the words they were using and the practices uh, that they were engaged in, what, what I thought they meant and what Catholics meant by them. So, for instance, I would have called putting roses, you know, at the foot of a statue idolatry, that, that, that they were worshiping 
Mary, where, as you said, it is absolutely forbidden for a Catholic to worship anyone but God. But because of my definition for worship and how I understood it, I couldn't see any other category for putting flowers by a statue uh, other than idolatry or worship. And the other one that's often um, used to accuse Catholics of doing something evil is the idea of necromancy. That when, for instance, with the prayers, invoking uh, the saints in our prayers that were engaged in necromancy. Because again, we didn't have other categories or ways of understanding the difference between what's forbidden in Scripture and what Catholics are doing. So it's just it's just kind of a mess. Uh, it was, in my mind, from, from my Protestant thinking, I just didn't have anywhere to put all of these things that Catholics were doing. And so I wrote them off as supplanting Jesus, unbiblical, idolatrous, you know, evil practices. Yeah, you guys pretty much covered most of the bases. There's just a couple other, you know, because when we don't cover all the objections, sometimes the objections show up in the comments on YouTube, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, I mean, other things that have popped up um, in my own experience, and I'm, I don't think that I necessarily caught this as much uh, in the Church of the Nazarene or in necessarily the Free Methodist Church, but I think I caught more of these kinds of things when I was working at Family Christian Store and getting Christians from all kinds of stripes and denominations, <clears throat> you know, kind of coming in looking for books and, and you know, cornering you in the back of the Bible section and, uh, you know, blasting their theological opinions at you. Uh, but, you know, some stuff that would pop up like, well, um, Paul says things about what women are and aren't allowed to do and be in church uh, to Timothy, right? And so by Catholics having this elevated role for Mary, they're launching her far beyond the place that a woman should hold um, in any kind of role in the church. I, I encountered that objection or... Um, even things like uh, the deep-rooted sense that there is no such thing as the visible church. Therefore, um, how can we say who is and is not a part of it? We won't know who's in heaven until we get there. So how can we point to Mary and say even she's there, uh, right? Weird little things that, you know, depending on what kind of scriptures you might have clung to, um, might have popped up as objections to the Protestant teaching on Mary, but I would say that my uh, my objections were very much down the line of the two things that you all you all described, right? I mean, and I think I mentioned this last week. Like, what does this have to do with me accepting Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior? I don't see the connection. Therefore, it's extra, and if it's extra, then there's no need for me to inject this into this situation. Do we leave anything out before we move on? We covered most of it. For most of it. All right. We're going to do our best to cover them all. Uh, obviously, we can't cover everything. But um, the next well, question. If it comes to, if, it, if we were going to list every objection and answer of it, every objection, yeah, we could have three or four um, episodes on Just it. Just of, anyway, of objections. But anyway, yeah. yeah, we're talking about the basic reasons why do Protestants have a hard time. And, yeah, and, and, and there's certainly it. reasons beyond that. Um, but the, the next kind of place we want to go with this is to point out that um, – Modern Protestants, um, I, like myself, like you all were, um, you know, have these issues. This was not necessarily an issue with the first generation of reformers, and I know that um, that th these are these are sources that we've cited a lot when people ask us about them. But there are sources that not all of our viewers may be familiar with. So uh, we'll start with you, Ken, because we just finished up a big old series on Luther, yeah. and I feel like it's probably important for people to know where Luther stood on some yeah. of this. Yeah, it's a, it's factually true that 
when you look at the writings of the early reformers, they did not have the same problems with the Marian teaching, Marian dogmas even, that most modern Protestants have with them. And so uh, I think at this point, it'd be good just to read a few quotations. We don't really have to comment or go deep into it, but just, just to show that this is the case. I'll take Martin Luther, since we just finished that series on Luther. Here are a few quotations. In 1527, so this is only six years after the launching of the Reformation, really, Luther preached a sermon that was titled, On the Day of the Conception of the Mother of God. There's a lot right there, right? I'll pack right into the title. But listen to what he said in this, in this sermon. It is a sweet and pious belief that the infusion of Mary's soul was effected without original sin, so that in the very infusion of her soul, she was also purified from original sin and adorned with God's gifts, receiving a pure soul infused by God. Thus, from the first moment she began to live, she was free from all sin. Okay, five years before this, 1522, Luther, in his personal prayer book, Luther encouraged Christians to include Mary in their times of prayer. This is what Luther wrote. Our prayer should include the mother of God. There's that phrase again, the dogma that we're going to come to a little bit later in this episode. Quoting Luther again, what the Hail Mary says is that all glory should be given to God. Using these words, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus Christ. Amen. And then here's one more. Here's Luther talking about Mary's perpetual virginity. A new lie about me is being circulated. I am supposed to have preached and written that Mary, the mother of God, was not a virgin either before or after the birth of Christ. Jesus Christ was the only son of Mary, and the Virgin Mary bore no children besides him. So there it is, and there are many more, but there it is in just three simple quotations. You have Mary, the mother of God, you have immaculate conception, you have perpetual virginity in the writings of Martin Luther. What about some of the other uh, reformers? Kenny, you got somebody? Yeah, I mean, and, and this this will come up probably in many of the episodes where we include quotes from uh, Protestant reformers in uh, the teaching, the Marian teaching of the church, because many of them uh, would have been accused uh, to use contemporary language uh, by some non-Catholics of being Mary worshipers, you know, just because of how they they talked about Mary, just like Catholics do. And early in his writings, uh, John Calvin uh, sounds pretty Catholic. Now, those who know C- Calvin's writings will say he changed his mind later, and he sure did. But in his Harmony of the Synoptic Gospels, which I'll quote from uh, quite a bit over the next few weeks, he says this in the section uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 43. He says, quote, She, Elizabeth, calls Mary the mother of her Lord. This denotes a unity of person in the two natures of Christ, as if she had said that he who was begotten a mortal man in the womb of Mary is, at the same time, the eternal God. And if you which we'll get into the Council of Ephesus a little later here, there are echoes of of the decrees and the dogmas that come out of Ephesus there in Calvin's writings. Now, later, um, people who know about Calvin will say, yeah, but, but he changed his mind, and he sure did. In fact, later he said in a letter uh, to the French church in London in 1522, uh, he wrote, to call the Virgin Mary the mother of God, can only serve to confirm the ignorant 
in their superstitions, and that he would take a pleasure in that shows clearly that he knows not what it is to edify the church. So what, what Calvin does is later says, people who call Mary the mother of God don't know how to edify the church, which when you think about it, he calls that ignorance and superstition, is like standing, you know, 1,500 plus years into church history, a thousand years after the Council of Ephesus, and to say to the whole church, you're all superstitious and ignorant for the way you've been talking, you know, for the last millennium plus. But that that's Calvin, so. <laughs> all right, well, since Luther and Calvin got their day in the sun, I'm going to throw Wesley in the mix, since I'm your token Wesleyan friend. Um, Go for it. <laughs> so uh, this is actually from a, a letter to a Roman Catholic by Wesley that he wrote in uh, 1749. Um, and this is related to the perpetual virginity. And, and as you all have mentioned, we're going to get into that um, belief that Mary is a virgin before and after um, in an upcoming episode. But uh, Wesley says this, he says, I believe that he was made man joining the human nature with the divine in one person being conceived by the singular operation of the Holy ghost and born of the blessed Virgin Mary, who as well after, as before she brought him forth, continued a pure and unspotted virgin. Mm. So, so, I mean, these are like the, between Luther and Calvin and Wesley, you're talking about all the biggest strands of Protestantism that, uh, you know, have blossomed into the various versions of Christianity we see all over the world today. Um, and they're all speaking stuff that sounds pretty much in line with what the church has held all along up until fairly recently. When right. in, in, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not the first generation necessarily where these things fall away. Yeah, and I think it's it's important to to state here we are not saying that uh, that Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, that the reformers believed all that the Catholic Church teaches about Mary. We're just pointing out, you know, as you raise the question. Uh, we're just pointing out that when you look at the early reformers, they did not appear to have the same problems or the same level of problem at all as most Protestants do now when they think about Marian, the Marian teaching of the church. All right. So um, I guess this gets into the, the what happened part. What? Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about dogma because we can't really talk about any of the dogmas until we talk about what dogma is. <laughs> so uh, what's the... what what? What's the best jumping off off point here to really? I mean, because this is one of the most misunderstood concepts in all of Catholicism. Is like how it's like how a bill becomes a law. It's like how does a dogma become a dogma? Like how does this all work? So where do we start, Kenny? Yeah, I think that's a great question and an important one. A dogma is a Catholic word. Uh, all Christians use it, not all in the same way. Catholics use it in some ways differently from Protestants. Uh, I would say um, a a great place for for people to discover how a doctrine or a teaching or a theological idea becomes a dogma or raises to the level of dogma. That that means it's a truth that the church holds to be binding, that it is essential Christianity. to, To depart from it is in that area to depart from the deposit of faith. Um, that a dogma becomes a dogma through a process. And that process is actually laid out for us in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. And the fir- let's call it the first church council outside of Scripture, or inside of Scripture, uh, is Acts 15. And then we have others that happen. But the first council or conciliar gathering of church leadership 
where there was a dispute, an issue that arose that needed to be figured out happens in Acts chapter 15. And for those who are watching this, I'll I'll just burn through it pretty quickly with 10 words that all start with the same letter, right? Because I can never get away from from that practice. I You're have too to Pentecostal preachery, man, because the you guys love your yeah. alliteration. You I'm love your, you. your multiple points. It's, and also, I want to point out before you dive into this, Kenny, that you missed so much adventure and excitement when we got through our whole authority question and and all the stuff related to Acts 15, we were talking about Christian authority yeah. and all the flinty knives and the circumcision parties and all that. Man, right. you missed all the fun stuff. Oh, and and you know it's important that we that we have a reference point for this, um, and and Scripture gives us th- this template that will it'll show up over and over and over again in lots of different theological areas for sure. The area of our talk about Mary. So we talk about four Marian dogmas. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean that something happened in church history in order to require the church to speak in definitive terms, both what something does mean and what something doesn't mean, and to speak, therefore, in dogmatic terms. That's this binding, unchanging, um, welding us to this reality of truth. So, for those who have a, a Bible nearby, pull it off your shelf, open it, to Acts chapter 15, and just read through it as I go through these 10 words, which all start with the letter D. And by the way, this comes from a discussion that I had with my son about two months ago when he and I went through a lecture series on ecumenical councils and the Council of Nicaea. And he asked me, Dad, how does a, because we were talking about the Trinity, how does a doctrine rise to the level of dogma. So this is my tool. This isn't the Catholic Church's tool. This is a tool that I have used in Scripture to help try to understand the way the Catholic Church works through things in a practical way, okay? So so uh, letter uh, word number one in the 10, these all start with D. Ready? Doctrine. Doctrine is the starting place for how something becomes a dogma. A, a doctrine is something that that Christians are teaching. So let's say there's this teaching out there. The the church says um Jesus is God. Okay? So that then becomes a teaching. Well, then the second D happens. A dispute. D number 2 is a dispute. Someone else comes along and says, "No, don't say it like that. Say it like this instead." And the other person says, "No, I want to say it like this." No, you can't say it like that. So now we're having a dispute about how to talk about a theological idea. And this first thing that was said is now called into question. So D number two is dispute. Then a third thing happens. In this dispute, there's discourse. This is where theologians and thinkers take up the question and propose different options. Well, let's let's talk about this. Why are you saying it this way? Why are you saying it that way? And they try to resolve it at the level of theological discourse. And in the Catholic Church today, this can happen in a diocese, it can happen in a country, it can happen worldwide. Well, we're not going to go all the way to dogma yet. We're just going to try to sort it out through the normal process of discourse. Um, But it may become so serious that the fourth D kicks in, which is delegations are formed. That is, groups of people 
are asked to participate in a much more formal level in these conversations. And so a delegation is put together. Uh, there may be an assignment. We'll sort through these things in this particular way um, and get the all the parties together and sort through it. So this delegation takes up the question maybe at a, at a higher level. And within that delegation process, the fifth D kicks in, which is debate, rigorous debate. Um, this is where all the interested parties now take everything that's been said before them, all the big ideas, put them together and hear each other out. And you'll see this if you're, if you're reading Acts 15. Now, everybody gets a chance to say what they think needs to be said. And so there is rigorous debate. Now, after the debate happens, then the sixth D kicks in, which is deliberation. Okay. We have now heard you all, and you'll see this in Acts 15. You know, the apostolic leaders of the church say, okay, we've, we've heard everybody. We got what you want to say. We got what you want to say. Now, what do we think as the apostolic leaders of the church? We would use the term magisterium, the bishops in communion uh, with, with Peter would deliberate. What, what sounded right to you? What didn't sound right to you? And so that sixth D is true, brotherly, sometimes, you know, iron sharpening iron deliberation. Then the seventh D happens. And this is where that group, the magisterial uh, office of the church, the bishops, the teachers of the church, come up, come up with a decision. They say, it's this. And they land. They land the plane. They say in concrete terms, it's this and not this. We choose this and not this. Or they may even create their own hybrid view of all of the deliberations and say, well, we've heard both sides and we think there's a third way. But the bottom line is that a decision is made. That decision turns into the eighth D. This, this collaborative conversational decision turns into something that's put into writing. It turns into a decree, a written statement about what the church believes. And this is why we have decrees. We have written dogmas. We have uh, the Nicene Creed and the, uh, the, you know, the, all of these creeds that come down through history. These are all the result of the seven steps just before them having happened. Then two more things happen. After this is decreed, something is decreed, then it is taken out and disseminated all around the church. Look, this is what the church actually believes. Go tell everyone. And you'll see this in Acts 15. They write down their final decree, and then they send out messengers, and they decree, they publish it far and wide to all the churches. This is done even today, you know, on the internet and letters are sent out and published in newspapers and so forth. That's a decree. Okay, but then there's one more thing that has to happen in order for it to become completely, quote, dogmatized, and that's number 10, the dogma itself. And dogma means once that decree goes out, the church is now bound, now that you know, now that you know that this is what the church teaches, you are now bound. And so if you're listening to this and you hear someone say dogma, next to that you could say bound. You are bound to accept this teaching that's been through this rigorous process as essential to the faith of the of 
the community of Jesus, of the church of Jesus. So it has now become the 10th D is it's been dogmatized. We're now bound to it. So that's a high level flyover. If you go back and listen to this, read Acts 15 and listen to those 10 Ds, you'll see them. They just pop right off the page over and over and over again. And Matt, before you live, uh, move on, I want to say something about this right here. When I was in seminary, I was going through uh, the class on the book of Acts and I was teaching through the book of Acts in our church. And I remember thinking to myself, does this church in Acts 15 still exist in the world today? Does the church that was doing this in Acts 15 that could, could publish a decree far and wide that bound the whole church to a theological idea, does it still exist? And before I was a Catholic, I was convinced that it didn't, that the church in Acts 15 had disappeared from the world. And I got to tell you, it, it scared me. It made me feel helpless and it made me feel concerned that I, I didn't even know if I was going to be able to find the difference between truth or error mm-hmm. if we came up with disputes to the, at the level, um, you know, that, that they were sorting out here in Acts 15. So, uh, but as a Catholic now, I say, yes, the church of Acts 15 still yeah. exists. And with respect to these Marian dogmas, which we're now going to be unfolding, decisions had to be made. And the church very carefully, as Ken will point out in a minute, very carefully follows the same template of of navigating through. They didn't use my 10 Ds. I'm using 10 well, Ds to look back. Well, Matt, I would like to I would like to respond to what you said with 27 Ps, if that's oh, okay. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Good luck. Actually, I have no, one more but... D to add, um, if that's all okay, right. Go ahead. Because I think this is important for people who... <laughs> you know, see the Catholic Church as this sort of like bureaucratic, bloodless, lifeless, you know, administrative body, right? There's another right. D that guides right. all those things, and it's called discernment, uh, because right. all this stuff is happening in the context of praying and yes. asking the Holy Spirit for guidance through the whole thing, right? It's not so like um, just an administrative committee gets together and says, well, this, yeah. you know, party believes this, and this party believes this. Well, you know, let's look at the practicalities, and let's look at how much money the lobbyists mm-hmm. gave to this. It's not how it works, right? It's discernment. And you can see it's that right. in Acts 15 all over the place, too. You're and right. You and when you read, yeah, you know, you read Acts 15, and when you read the decrees of the, the councils throughout the ages of the church and what they wrote, that is that language of the guidance of the Holy Spirit through a prayerful, um, albeit difficult process, is always included in there. So yeah, that, that's a good. That's a good. Okay, now everything you said about Acts fifteen, just uh, Kenny and, and Matt, it really strikes me because Acts fifteen was an important text for me too. And yes, without rehearsing the D's, you have the situation. Some of the brothers come down from Jerusalem, down to Antioch and Syria, and they're saying that with regard to Gentiles, that they must be circumcised and keep the customs of Moses in order to be saved. You, Barnabas and Paul are sent up to Jerusalem. This council that is referred to still as the Council of Jerusalem, the first council of the Christian of Christian history. This council takes place. All of these Ds take place, all, all the 10 Ds. And when this letter is sent out, I love the fact that it begins with these words, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and they give their answer, okay? And then I love the fact that the churches that receive that decree, they're happy. You know, they don't say, well, this is your point of view, but we'll study the Bible and we'll see if we agree with you right. or not, or maybe we'll make some kind of fine-tuning of what you've given us. Instead, 
the people who receive this decree are happy. They accept it. And think about it. It's a big deal. The decision has been made. Gentile converts do not have to become Jews in order to be saved. They don't have to receive circumcision, and they don't have to live by the customs or the laws of Moses. They don't have to take up the Torah and have that be their life, uh, their life, um, uh, whatever the right word would be. Okay? So, and as you said, this goes on. I just want to give one more illustration because this same pattern, this same template occurs in the Great Ecumenical Council of Nicaea in 325, which is considered historically to be the first ecumenical council. This is 300 years, almost 300 years after the Council of Jerusalem. Most scholars debate, I mean, date Jerusalem around 49 AD, 48, 49, 50 AD. So this is almost 300 years later. Another dispute has broken out that is one of the most important in the early church is in the Church of Alexandria in Egypt, one of the most important churches. Basically, to to summarize it quickly, a presbyter by the name of Arius, where we get Arianism, he was teaching that Jesus was not eternally begotten of the Father, and therefore Jesus wasn't co-eternal with the Father. Instead, Jesus was created out of nothing. He may be the highest of all created beings, he may have been the first of all created beings, but he was not co-eternal with the Father. Alexander, who was the bishop of uh, the church in Alexandria at the time, and his uh, right arm, the deacon, Athanasius, took the other side of this debate. And finally, a council was called in Nicaea in 325, and a decision was made. Arius is wrong. <laughs> you know, his statement is false. Jesus was not created out of nothing. Rather, Jesus is the co-eternal Son of the Father, eternally begotten of the Father. And by the way, that's why every single Sunday when we uh, recite the Nicene Creed in Mass, um, we confess Christ as light. You know, some people read this and they think, why are we going on and on and on and on with this description of Jesus in the Nicene Creed? But that's why we recite these words, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. All of these phrases are being piled up because the Council of Nicaea was all about answering this uh, claim that was coming out from Aria, uh, from Arius, the presbyter. And by the way, just quickly, I want to mention this uh, to you guys because I thought it was very interesting. Another issue that was settled at the same council was the dating on which uh, the date on which Easter would be celebrated. And when I read the letter that was sent from the Council of, of um, Nicaea to the church in Alexandria on this, it, it just brought back Acts 15. It, it, it reads a whole lot like the letter that was sent from the Council of Jerusalem. So let me read it to you quickly. We also send you the good news. So this is something that's going to make them happy. It's good news again, just like in Acts 15. We also send you the good news of the settlement concerning the Holy Pash, that is re referring to the Christian Passover, Easter. Namely, that in answer to your prayers, this question also has been resolved. All the brethren in the East who have hitherto followed the Jewish practice will henceforth observe the custom of the Romans and of yourselves and of all of us who from ancient times have kept Easter together with you. It's just the sound of it. Okay, something else was resolved at this council. It's going to make you happy to hear it. This is what has been decided. This is how we're going to live. Isn't that amazing? So yes. in other words, everything you said about dogma, you know, I like the 10 Ds, although I got to say, I did not go for the alliteration thing when I was a pastor. And uh, 
if I didn't become Catholic for other reasons, I might have become Catholic just to escape the alliteration. <laughs> but anyway, the 10 Ds work very well in this case. But everything that you said about dogma, how dogma develops, this is what we see in church history. We see it in Nicaea, we see it in Constantinople in 381, and then we're going to see it in Ephesus in, in, in 431 as well. And nobody, except for perhaps people who get their church history and theology from like programs that run at 2 a.m. on the History Channel, nobody would think to themselves, no Christian would say, well, nobody really believed in the divinity of Jesus until like 325, until when it was dogmatized. Yeah. You know, every Christian, every honest Christian would be like, oh, well, this is something that was believed from the beginning, but again, defined in a specific way. And I just want to have, you know, kind of one other example uh, of this. Ken, you um, mentioned a quote by Luther about Mary's conception. Do you mind reading that just very briefly one more time? Because sure. I feel like this illustrates a point too. Um, about how this all works, about how it's not like things that get invented over time, you know, because somebody just decides to like grab a concept out mm -hmm. of thin air and just be like, ah, we mm -hmm. decide we're going to believe this today. So what was that uh, quote then from Luther yeah. um, from, what is it, like 1517? This was regarding, uh, this was 1527. 1527. Um, this was in his sermon with the title On the Day of the Conception of the Mother of God. And we're going to come to the Immaculate Conception in a few episodes um, but this is what he's talking about. Here's what he said. It is a pious, it, oh, excuse me. It is a sweet and pious belief that the infusion of Mary's soul was effected without original sin. So that in the very infusion of her soul, she was also purified from original sin and adorned with God's gifts, receiving a pure soul infused by God. Thus, from the first moment she began to live, she was free from all sin. You will see almost identical language to that in the formally pronounced dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which will not be pronounced for another 300 years in 1855. After right. Luther. 300 yeah, years after Luther. after Luther wrote that, the church is going to define the Immaculate Conception using almost identical language. So just to kind of throwing it out there that this is sort yeah. of how some of this stuff yeah. you know, kind of gets together. But man, we are we are cranking through content. So let's get to the, uh, the next point. So um, these are... I mean, I mean, I use the Immaculate Conception. That's a later illustration. But what about this whole idea that that some of these things really pop up? Like, you know, the the assumption is less than 100 years old as a formally defined dogma. So what are we supposed to do with that? Right. You know, Matt, that's a that's a charge that I heard very early in my journey from a fellow Foursquare pastor who was an ex-Catholic and became kind of an anti-Catholic. And that was exactly his question to me. Well, what are you going to do with your... Marian dogma that was, you know, invented, uh, he used that word, you know, less than a hundred years ago. And um, this is a charge that happens. And that's why I'm glad you brought up the thing about, about Luther 300 years before, you know, the Immaculate Conception is defined. And what I said to my fellow uh, Foursquare pastor, my friend, was the church doesn't invent dogma. That's a fallacy. What the church does is define. You go, we go back to those, those D's. The only reason a dogma, you know, has to get thrown out there like it does, for instance, with the Immaculate Conception or the one that we're talking about today, which is divine motherhood, is because at some point, somebody with a voice, maybe a really big voice, 
came up with an alternative idea against something that had already been believed in church history and gathered a following and got a lot of people to go after it to the point where the church has to now stand up and speak in definitive terms. And that's why you'll find throughout church history that things arise to the level of dogma. It isn't because, you know, this is kind of a funny illustration, but, you know, I think sometimes of uh, the, the Mormon idea of the prophet, seer, and revelator is the idea that they talk about Joseph Smith, like he's going to stick his head in a hat and get divine revelation from God. It, it, we're not thinking that way about dogma that, 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 you know, a few years ago, the Pope stuck his head in a hat and got this new idea uh, that we should say that, you know, Mary was conceived without original sin or that she was assumed into heaven. No, what's happening is in church history, things that were always believed fall into dispute. They fall into disagreement to the point where the church has to speak. And uh, that, that's how I would kind of confront the fallacy that these are later, these are later yeah. dogmas. Yeah, and I think that it's easier for Protestants to accept the earlier uh, dogmatic statements because they're closer to the time of the apostles. And I guess looking back right. in 2,000 years later, you can kind of shrink the, you know, the calendar down so that when you come to Nicaea in 325 and you have this you know, you have this dogmatic statement of Jesus as co-eternal with the Father and eternally begotten and all that, then uh, Protestants are fine with, yeah, that's dogmatic, That that's fine. And you're not inventing that. Yeah, you didn't invent that in 325. It was clarified, and it had to be clarified because of Arius and, and all that was happening regarding the, the rise of Arianism. And then the same thing with Constantinople in 381, you know, the 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 divinity of the Holy Spirit being affirmed strongly there. And then when we come to 431, which we're going to look at in a moment, but Christ being one person with two natures, a fully human nature and a divine nature, even though that's 431 AD, so now you're 400 years after the time of the apostles, uh, no one thinks that that's being invented at that point. Everyone understands that, no, no, because of circumstances, that arose and because of all these D's, you know, um, it had to be defined. Well, that's one of the D's. It had to be defined and it's being defined at that time. And I came up with kind of a, a I came up with a modern illustration of this, um, Kenny. I mean, imagine that a new heresy were to arise in our world now. And what the heresy taught was that a woman is wh whoever happens to identify as a woman, that's who a woman is. That, that it has nothing to do with biology, has nothing to do with God's creative purpose or anything like that. I mean, anyone who defines themselves or identifies themselves as being a woman is a woman. And then imagine that this heresy begins to spread such that a movement begins to arise within the church where there are biological women that are wanting to be admitted into the priesthood. Because after all, they are not women. They identify as men. And uh, if the priesthood is only for men, then now... Um, we should be able to become priests. Well, the church, you know, as we think about this, the church might at some point have to meet, and all these D's you talked about would occur, and a decision might have to be made, and a dogma might have to be proclaimed stating that biological females alone are women, and that women are not just whoever, uh, you know, says that they identify as a woman. Would this be the invention of a new it dogma? Yeah, it would you know, be a would, fallacy. Would someone be able to say? It would yeah, be a would fallacy. Would someone be able to just jump up and say, 
oh, you're inventing a dogma? I can't believe it. Like 2,000 years after Christ, you're inventing this idea that only biological females are... Yeah, right, right. No one would even think that. You would understand, right. no, this is something that has been believed, but something that because of circumstances had to be carefully defined and yes. it had to be dogmatically stated. Well, that's how we view, that's how the church views dogma. Yeah, dogma is not just this thing that just materializes out of thin air and somebody says, well, it's Thursday, what should we believe today? That's not how the church thinks about yeah. it. Dogma is yeah. something that the church has always held to, hasn't necessarily formally put into a specific kind of formula or set of rules. It flows forth from the way that the church thinks about this kind of thing anyway, and then it puts it into a formalized structure. It's kind of like at the pool, right? At the kiddie pool, at your public swimming area, there's a sign on the side of the kiddie pool that says, don't dive headfirst into the kiddie pool. And the only reason <laughs> that sign is there is because some moron somewhere tried it. And now we got to make a rule. Yeah. And everybody's And I remember the first ruined. time, I remember so many years ago reading Lorraine Bettner's famous book, Roman Catholicism, his treatise against Catholicism. And that was one of his main arguments. He'd go along and say, this teaching of the Catholic Church, man, it wasn't even defined until 800 B A AD. And there's this one. It wasn't defined until 1100. This one, 1400. And it was, it was supposed to be, you know, uh, obvious proof that, that the Catholic Church just makes up stuff as it goes along. Well, and again, and imagine, we, imagine uh, okay. Lorraine Bettner writing his, his book today and saying, you know, and they believe that, you know, women are biological adult females. They didn't even invent that dogma until the 2000s. You know, they made, right. made it's that It's not up even later. mentioned in the catechism, right? Right. Because um, yeah. it's not, right. right? Because when the catechism right. was written, that, that right. uh, issue wasn't on the table the way it is today. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's stuff that Lorraine Bretner would say about the church that we don't have time to get into today, which is to say like, oh, well, let's look at, for example, the modern structure of the confessional and the, the way that confession is dealt with in 2022, very different than the way that confession uh, was dealt with in the first century of the church, as has more to do with a question of discipline, right? Um, or a question of, of how something is sort of set up. It doesn't have to do with like a core belief of of who Jesus is, right? Or, or 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 those kinds of questions, which are often addressed with dogma. But now that we've done all this work, I mean, I guess we got to talk about one of the dogmas. And it is really, no in some ways, the simplest one to tackle because it's something that every Protestant of goodwill believes. They may not use the same terminology that Catholics use, but it's one that every person who considers themselves a Trinitarian Christian holds to. So... um it's the it's the question of yeah. of who did Mary give birth to, and what does that mean? How does that change the way that we talk about Mary? So, Ken, if you could just lay the the just this the basic structure now that we've yeah. got all the building blocks in place. Now, believe it or not, although this is the this is what we've been coming to in this entire episode, that is the first Marian dogma that was defined formally at the Council of Ephesus in four thirty one A.D. Um, that is the divine motherhood of Mary. Uh, referring to Mary as the mother of God, okay? Um, it won't take very long because it, it kind of just comes at the end of this train as we've explained how dogma functions, how dogma is formed, how it comes about, and what it means. Um, actually, it's it's pretty easy to see how this one happens and, and how it's to be defended. Although I do want to say to my Protestant brothers and sisters out there, I still remember, I do. I mean, even after I became Catholic, 
Whenever I would hear someone refer to Mary as the mother of God, there was something in me that would just sort of rattle, like my bones would sort of sh shake inside my, my body because it just sounded so strange to me and it sounded wrong. It, it, it sounded like you were saying that, uh, as I said earlier, that Mary was somehow gave birth to the Holy Trinity or the Mary's above. You got Mary up here and then you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit below Mary. You know, she's the mother of God. And so I remember how that felt, but actually the divine motherhood of Mary, the first Marian doctrine defined, is one of the easiest to explain and the easiest to defend. And I'll give you the historical sketch just very quickly. There's so many details involved in it, but we're, we're now in the early fifth century of Christian history. The archbishop, so this wasn't just a deacon, it wasn't just a presbyter like with Arius, this was the archbishop of Constantinople. Now, Constantinople was one of the main cities of Christendom. In fact, it was the new Rome, the, the, the empire, the Roman Empire, the seat of the Roman Empire had already been moved from Rome to the city of Constantinople. So this is a big guy, Nestorius, the Archbishop of Constantinople at the time. He was excommunicated at the Council of Ephesus in 431, excommunicated by Pope Celestine for denying that Mary was the mother of God, okay? In 431. And now, the issue, you kind of hinted at this, Matt, in your, in your uh, opening statements here just a moment ago, but the issue for Nestorius, it, it wasn't really focused on his understanding of Mary. It was focused on his understanding of Christ. It was his Christology. Now, I know there's debate even now among historians as to whether Nestorius actually was a Nestorian, or maybe he was kind of a little bit of a Nestorian and other people took it and ran with it. So I'm not getting into that, okay? I'm just taking the classic view here in order to explain the position, because the position exists whether Nestorius fully held it or partially held or whatever. But Nestorius appears to have taught that in Christ there are two persons that exist in moral union with one another rather than one divine person existing with two natures, okay? He appears to have taught something along the lines that in Christ there are two persons that exist in moral union with another. Now, what the Council of Ephesus confirmed, what had been believed, was that Jesus Christ was one person. He was the second person of the Blessed Trinity who had been united to a human nature in the Incarnation. One person with two natures which is how Christians have stated it ever since then. Jesus Christ was one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. But who is this one person? That's the question. And what the Council of Ephesus came forth with, and what has been held as Orthodox Christian teaching ever since, is that the person that was born to Mary was the second person of the Blessed Trinity, united to a human nature, fully divine nature, fully human nature. This is how the Council of Ephesus stated it. If anyone does not confess that God is truly Emmanuel, and that on this account the Virgin Mary is the mother of God, for according to the flesh she gave birth to the Word of God, become flesh by birth, let him be anathema. And now scrolling forward all the way to the present time when the Catechism of the Catholic Church the most recent version that was published in, is it 1983, 88, something like that? 80s, under, yeah. Under, under John, John Paul, Paul II. II. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is how it's stated. Called in the Gospels the mother of Jesus, 
Mary is acclaimed by Elizabeth at the prompting of the Holy Spirit and even before the birth of her son as, quote, the mother of my Lord, unquote. And she says, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then continuing to quote from the catechism. In fact, the one she conceived as man by the Holy Spirit, who truly became her son according to the flesh, was none other than the Father's eternal Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Hence the Church confesses that Mary is truly the mother of God. So the entire debate that occurred back at the time of Nestorius, the reason he rejected the title Mother of God was because he didn't see the person that was born of Mary as being the eternal Son of the Father, God in the flesh. He had a view that there were in Christ two persons that were united um, together with a moral union with one another, so that I guess it was something along the lines of Mary just gave birth to the human person who then was united with the divine person, but she didn't get birth to one person who is the blessed, I mean, who is the second person of the blessed Trinity. So the Orthodox position that really all Christians, or I'd say virtually all Christians, hold regarding their Christology, regarding Christ, just logically necessitates the idea that Mary could be called and should be called the mother of God. Not as a way of praising her, though, but as a way of making it extremely clear that the one who was born of her is God. Anything to add to that, Kenny or Matt? I'd say I'd say two things to that. I, I, I sure appreciate that high-level summary of what happened in history. Fits in really well with the the ten Ds, I must say. But um, you know, remember that phrase that I I used earlier when I was talking about why it's so hard sometimes for Protestants to accept the Marian dogmas. And that phrase we used in our church: "It's all about Jesus." And what I would say right here to tie into what you just said, Ken, is that the first Marian dogma to be able to say, Mary is the mother of God. That's all about Jesus. That dogma is a Christological dogma. Now, again, Mary is in there. In that sense, it's a Marian dogma, but it's a dogma that's all about Jesus. And uh, so, so that's one thing. And then the second thing I would say is, you know, we're, we're not proof texting everything here, but my I guess my final contribution to this discussion today would be to end my portion with a biblical text, and that's in Matthew chapter 2, where the wise men uh, from the east set out to find the uh, follow this star and to find this promised Messiah. And in Matthew chapter 10, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 10, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child. So pause right there, and I would ask, who is the child? And a good Christian answer, a good Orthodox answer would be, the child is God the Son, God, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, the God-man. That's who the child is. And then it says, and Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. So there in the story of the, the wise men, they find Jesus, who is God with us, with Mary, his mother. So the language in that text is that Mary is the mother of whoever that child is. And the church is saying the child is God, the son, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, the God man. So that, that's Amen. my contribution to the, the divine motherhood discussion. 
Yeah, there's only just two quick things I would add to that um, at the end. Uh, and one is that there were a few other things floating around besides just Nestorianism that we're having trouble with figuring out. You know, there's there's this issue that pops up in certain heretical things like adoptionism and some other stuff where you can see these theologians and these bishops, they're like, we're okay with grown-up Jesus preaching and teaching and dying and rising. We're okay with that being God, but we have, we're have we a little uncomfortable with the idea of like two-day-old pooping in his swaddling clothes Jesus being God. We can't really handle that, and so this is where a lot of this actually comes from. Um, and the church is like, no, uh, either he's yeah. God or he's not. I mean, and, and we see this in the creed, right? Uh, he is begotten, not made. He's He's not somebody that God made and said, boom, poof, you're my son, right? <laughs> this is The church is very, very clear and careful about this. The second thing I would say is, um, and as you mentioned this, Ken, before, every Christian who believes in the Trinity believes this, um, but if you're uncomfortable with the phrase, mother of God, just say Theotokos, that's what the Eastern Christians do, it means the same yeah. exact thing. And uh, I have a lot of friends who became Orthodox instead of Catholic, and they get off the hook because um, they go around saying the- Theotokos all the time, and their Protestant friends don't know what it means, but it means the same exact thing. <laughs> so, And it comes from the and same virgin, exact decision. So it comes out of the same council. will conceive, yeah, uh, Theotokos means God-bearer. Yeah. And a ver- I think of Isaiah chapter 7, and a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, God, God with, us, with right? us. right? And yeah. not merely Christotokos, which is just the Christ bearer, the one who would become anointed. No, Mary did not just merely bear the one who would become anointed, who she held in her womb, as Elizabeth so clearly pointed out in Luke's gospel that you read from. Um, she's the mother of the Lord, right? Which tells us an awful lot about Mary, but it only tells us about Mary by virtue of who that is in there. Right. Yeah. And that's what really matters. Um, of course, all the Marian dogmas are Christological, uh, but this one is like visible from space Christological. So, man, guys, we covered so much ground here. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we got one dogma down. We got more to go. And this is a lot of well, fun. I appreciate And hopefully me. Yeah, and I appreciate your... I appreciate your last two points, but I wish you could have put them in the form of two Ds or two Es um, or something, you know? I should have said diapers how's instead that, of swaddling how, clothes. How's anyone going to remember what we've said when we didn't lay it out in that way? Mm. Um, we were, y- yeah, we've begun oh. here, and we're going to move on next week. We're going to begin to talk next week about uh, the second dogma regarding Mary that was defined, which is the perpetual virginity of Mary. All right. Final housekeeping before we go, come visit us at chnetwork.org for lots of free stuff. If you're looking for a community of people who are hashing these ideas out all the time, come to community.chnetwork.org. If you want to continue to make this kind of content free for anybody who's coming with questions about the church, go to chnetwork.org compass. And we'll talk more about this in future episodes, but we're leading a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Both Ken and Kenny are going to be on it. And uh, this is an opportunity to be in the places where this stuff actually really did happen. Um, so if you want to find out more about that, uh, go to chnetwork.org and click on pilgrimages. Ken, Kenny, thank you again. We'll talk to you next Good week. Good to see you guys again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.